grace and peace exist to bring the healing of the good news of the gospel into this place, into our hearts, so that it would be applied, that it would mend the brokenness there. We ask that the Lord would bring his healing, the good news, into this city, that it would mend our relationships. And why do we ask that? It's because you and I, all of us, we suffer, we struggle. Life is not the way it ought to be, is it? It is not the way it ought to be. We all have suffered and we know affliction. Many of us have, have happened to uh, lose jobs. We've lost loved ones. We've struggled to make ends meet. If you are young and you still haven't uh, gotten out and, and you haven't lost friends, you will. People have hated you for no reason. People have bullied you. And there's this deep suffering that happens in all of us. And we cry out and we wonder, why does this happen? Why does the unexpected happen? Where is God to account for this? Uh, in one of the great sh- movies that I've watched uh, recently was Stranger Than Fiction, which stars uh, Will Ferrell. Yes, the funny guy from Elf and, and also uh, um, you know, Talladega Nights and Anchorman. And so he stars as this person named Harold Crick who is obsessed with uh, doing things just the right way, the perfect way. He never makes a mistake. He's an auditor for the IRS. He knows everything. He, he uh, crosses every T, dots every I, he counts incessantly and knows the number of everything. But then one day as he was getting dressed and putting on his watch, he then hears someone narrating what he is doing. He's like, what in the world is going on? And what happens throughout the story is Harold Crick uh, then is going through his day and then suddenly he hears the narrator again and the narrator says, little does he know he's about to die. And he goes, what? Wait, I'm about to die? What do you mean? And he starts freaking out, right? And so he wants to know why is this happening to him? Why? And so he goes throughout the rest of the story trying to find out who this narrator is. Who is this author who is penning everything down, who has decided that he's going to die. He wants to stand in front of this person and have his judgment. He wants his day in court. He wants to know why this has happened. And in the end, it turns out it's just an English woman narrating the story who's a chain smoker, uh, played by Emma Thompson by the name of Karen Eiffel, who can't figure out how she's going to kill Howard Crick. It's it's Harold Crick. And so she's trying to figure this out. And when she sees him face to face, just as she described him as she's writing this book, she knows at that moment she's got to do something different. She got to change his mind. But as he's reading the story of his own life, he's like, I've got to die. After he's searched the depths of this woman's understanding, this woman's thinking, he realizes her judgment is true. It's okay. It's very strange. And we all look for that kind of standing with someone, right? We hope to knock on the door, open, and, and there's God standing there waiting for us to hear what we have to say so that we get a judgment. 
right? And Job, this is what happens to him. He's looking for a judgment in all the suffering that, he has, that, that has come upon him. You know, and so can we get an answer for all this suffering? And here's the deal. All of us are claiming that suffering is terrible, aren't we? Suffering is bad. Why do our loved ones have to live in anguish on a, on a hospital bed for weeks on end with no hope of getting out? It's immoral. That is not the way it's supposed to be. Every time we shed a tear, we instinctually say, this is not, that is not the way it's supposed to be. It points that there is a way that it ought to be. But all of us wonder, why does all this suffering happen to me? What have I done? What have I done to deserve it? Uh, one of the common ways that is coming up now to explain suffering is through Buddhism. And Buddhism has gotten real uh, fancy nowadays. And there's some good understandings that, that we can actually kind of glean from it because we believe all, God, all truth is God's truth no matter where it's from. But it's just a little off. So... Buddhism says that pain and misery exist in all of life. That's a given. I'm like, no, duh, I can observe that one. And then the next one they say is suffering is caused by personal craving or personal desire or selfishness in everybody. I'm like, "Uh, okay, I can kind of get with that one. And then it starts to go off the rails. Therefore, they say, detach yourself from selfish relationships to anything. If you're to detach yourself, then you won't actually have suffering. And I start to think, well, that's a little weird, okay? And here's the reason why you and I think it's weird, right? Because you are not knocking on the door and getting a judgment from someone who's personal. Here's the deal. I'm going to cook your noodle. The problem with things like believing that suffering is just kind of amoral or, or it is impersonal, that, that nothing, you know, there's no, no one to actually uh, knock on the door to, you are actually contending with nothing, with nobody, How in the world do you contend and say, hey, this isn't just, this isn't good, if there is no reason for it, if there's no personality behind it? So can you imagine, it it would be like going up to a judge and then talking to a ventriloquist dummy with no hand up the back of the ventriloquist dummy. How is he supposed to give you a judgment? There's no personality. So who do you contend with? If the world is uh, run by karma, you reap what you sow, and every little personal lack will come back, maybe even tenfold, and get you in the end. Who are you to contend with? If the world is run by impersonal forces, you should be very afraid. Very afraid. Because there's no one to say, hey, this isn't right. And so Job is wondering, he knows that his Redeemer lives. He knows that there is a judge who will judge him and give him the positive verdict that he deserves. And he does not sin in the entire time of the book of Job. So we learn this from the book of Job. Remember, Job is within wisdom literature. And wisdom is written so that you may uh, be formed in the uh, act Uh, in the art of godly living so that you would have skill in the art of godly living so that you would be shaped to be a type of person but what do you do when suffering happens job was written probably during around the time of the patriarchs he seems to be a character in that time we don't know who the author is but it is put in our text so that we would know what does it look like to suffer well what does wise suffering look like And we see that seeing God in our suffering will produce wisdom. 
It says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job, he's in a relationship with God. And uh, here's, here's, a, here's one thing, okay? Ready? For in good interpretation, write down, write Job. He is in relationship with God. And then I want you to write next to it, I am not Job. That'll help you with your interpretation. Perfect. You are not Job. But you're included in what the Bible will unfold as the true and better innocent sufferer, the true Job. All right? So you are not that person. Job is an idealized character. He's the wise character who we ought to aspire to, but you are not Job. Okay? His comforters, they're kind of idiotic and they're ridiculous. You're meant to see them as ridiculous. That is who you should probably identify in the story. The idiotic bad comforter. That's who you're supposed to see yourself. And the thing is, is they put themselves in the place of God as judge. Job, then, he is this righteous, good-standing man who has a relationship with God. And God says, whenever Satan sneaks up there, and he's like, how did you get in here? And, and Satan says, well, you know, I was kind of going to and fro the earth. And God then offers up Job. I'm sure Job is probably saying, gee, thanks, God. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? You know, he's great. He's awesome. And then uh, Satan's like, that's because you protect him. You baby him. You coddle him. You know, if you allow a little suffering into his life, he'll curse you like that. So it sets up the dramatic scene, right? Sets up the tension in the story. Will Job quit on God? Will Job quit on God? So that's always in the tension. And do you know who's the nagging people who's getting him to quit or like give up his integrity? It's his three friends. It's always his three little friends that are kind of getting at him, right? And so Satan then goes down and kills his children, all his livestock. He gets rid of his house. He's like, ha ha. And then yet Job doesn't ever quit on God. And so Satan's all like, ah, you want to know why, God? It's, it's because you don't allow me to touch his skin and get after him. And so Satan then afflicts him with boils in which he scrapes off with a rock. Yes, I know that is disgusting, but it wants you to know how disgusting and putrid this is and how terrible it is for him. And so there's God and Satan. You have to have a disciplined imagination at this point. Why would God allow this to happen? Notice that Job never finds out. Job never finds out why this happens. Now, of course, if any of you have taken philosophy 101, you're probably raising your hand right now like, hey, I want to know. Because my philosophy professor said, if there is an all-wise, benevolent God who actually loves us, why would he allow suffering to happen? There's suffering, therefore, there couldn't be an all-wise, loving God. That's... Usually the way the argument works, we see that they're suffering, therefore you got to punt God. You know, philosophy 101, you get a hold of that, you have a good reason. People are like, eh, I'm not going to go follow this Christian God. But it's not answering that. Job, the book of Job, is not answering why suffering happens. It assumes that they're suffering. It assumes that they're suffering. And in fact, Job is then counted as a righteous person. He's counted as, as, as good character all the way through. Why? And why does this happen? Just because. No reason to know. So we'll find out. We'll dig a little deeper. 
And so then there comes these three comforters who start off doing really well. They rend their clothes, sackcloth and ashes. They mourn and grieve with Job. But their background of why they're mourning and grieving with Job is in order that they don't incur God's wrath as well. We will find that out. And then these three comforters, these false comforters that they were called, or lousy comforters that they, were, that they would be called, they, they um, test Job's integrity. Because the entire time, Job, will he curse God? Was one question. But then the other question is this. They're always saying, Job, if you would just confess your sin to the Lord and repent like we do, you'll be okay. God will restore to you everything. So they have this idea that God will pay him back, right? That God will owe him if they do the right thing. If Job does the right thing, Job's like, why would I do an evil thing in order to leverage God? He's like, I have nothing to, to confess and repent at this point. I'm an innocent sufferer. But they're like, oh no, come on. Look at all that's happened to you. There's got, you've got to have done something wrong, Job. You have to have done something to incur all that. You're a little sinner and I know it. Right? They're like, if we had a camera on you, we would know, okay? And here's the deal. That's the way we all feel toward everybody else, isn't it? We look at everybody else, we see that something negative has happened to them, and then sneaking in the back of our brain is all like, they deserved it. And we have a list of reasons why. But Job is an actual innocent sufferer. It even says so throughout the text, and God declares so at the end. We read it in chapter 42. Job is an innocent sufferer. You know, and so someone in Philosophy 101 right about now would be saying, but Vince, we've all sinned. Evil's in the world. That's why evil happens and suffering happens. But we can't apply it to Job. We can't go that way. Here's the deal. To say that we know and can exhaust the very ends of why God allows anything to happen is to put ourselves in the position of God. To say that we know why this happens. And so, here's the deal. God shows up in this whirlwind and he doesn't give them the answer that he necessarily wants, but he gives them the answer that he needs and that he is a personal God and he gives them his character and his ability and says, you have not punted me, you have not gotten rid of me and I'm still with you. And in the end, he rewards him In the end, ultimately, all things are undone. And so here's the deal. In order to grow in wisdom, we must see suffering and see God in the suffering. So we must see suffering. We must see God in the suffering. Uh, There was a Haitian woman that I saw on television on NBC News about nine years ago when a terrible 7.0 earthquake tore apart Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And in it, this woman was crying and she's talking about what was happening and she was flustered and suddenly she says this. And it was a wise statement. She says, I don't know why this happens, but I know That God loves me. And that was the end of the take. I'm like, what in the world? That amazingly wise. 
Someone who grows up in poverty, who's had suffering all her life, and has just probably lost loved ones in an earthquake through poor housing collapsing in on them, and she says, I know God still loves me. So we must see suffering, and we must also see God in suffering. We live in an age that is relatively free of suffering. So when it does happen, we're generally caught off guard, and it hits us pretty bad. And we can't be ignorant of it. In the opening scenes, we see Job is afflicted by, by Satan. And notice it, it God also though offers, offers him up to Satan. So God somehow permits it. And so we see the suffering. And so what do we do? We understand that there is suffering. We must take a look at it. We must acknowledge suffering as actual suffering. To see it is to acknowledge it and say, suffering is real. Suffering is true. Suffering sucks. Suffering is terrible. We can get angry at it. Jesus wept at the death of a friend. And so Blaise Pascal says this, Knowledge of God without misery causes pride. Knowing God without any, any kind of misery, any kind of suffering causes pride. You end up like the three friends. Uh, then he says, Misery without knowledge of God causes despair. You end up as a nihilist. You end up European. Then he says, knowledge of Jesus Christ constitutes both because in him we see God and misery. And so what can we not say then when we show up and our friends have been afflicted? What do you not say? You should probably not try to explain things by a law of retribution. Law of retribution was really well known in the ancient Near East. It says basically it is the same idea that we have with uh, popular culture karma. You get out whatever you put in and it is just whatever you get out. And Eliaphaz says it, says it correctly, says it almost word for word when he says, uh, remember who was innocent, who, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So you get that? And this is condemned in the end. This thinking is condemned in the end. The idea that, oh, I know why this happened. He deserved it because of X. He deserved that because um, he, he, he did some crime earlier. He deserved that suffering. And so all of them approach Job and they're like, ah, you've obviously done something wrong. Repent. So Bildad does the same. He says this, How long will you say these things? In the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Of course not. Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. They deserve it, those punks. That's what he's trying to say. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright... Surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. And so Bildad says, hey, if you really are righteous, God will hear you and he'll repay everything back. It was like it was a mistake. You know, he'll have mercy on you if you're really good. If you're really good. And Job's like, "Mm, I don't know if you guys understand what's going on. 
And then Zophar jumps in and he even he tries to help even more. And then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go on unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, O Job? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I'm clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that you, he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So everyone's saying, Job, you're guilty. You deserved it. Just admit your guilt. And Job's like, ah, uh, yeah, I don't think so. I want my day in judgment. I want my day in court. How is God going to judge me? And so a lot of people, we think this way, and we can kind of show up at friends' houses, and we have this smirking under, under like, it's because you didn't pay all your taxes. Or, it's because you didn't give enough at church. Or, it's because you didn't pray hard enough. And all this does is add shame. Shame on you. You didn't give enough. You didn't pray enough. You didn't share your faith enough. That's why evil befalls you. And God's saying, how, do you, how are you coming up with a judgment like that? He condemns these three friends for this thing. He condemns them. And so we have a three friends. You see this upset wife. who The upset wife actually says, you know, hey, just be done with it, Job. Curse God, then he'll kill you. It'll be great. You're better off dead anyway. You know, she doesn't even get an inheritance. So you can't even call her a gold digger. I don't know why she's so upset. She must, man, that's just tough. Okay? So, there's this upset wife. There's three friends who are terrible comforters just trying to find, add shame onto Job, saying, you really are a sinner. Just admit it. Right? And then there is this know-it-all named Eliahu. This, who doesn't even get mentioned in the end. It's like he interrupts God trying to speak for God, and God's like about to talk, and then, you know, when the little kid like jumps in, they're like, how did you speak so fast? That's Eliahu. We'll talk about him in a little bit. So these guys are technically, they can be theologically correct. You want to know how fun, it, how fun this is? Some of the earlier uh, copies of the Westminster Confession, the Statement of Faith of the Presbyterian Church of America, actually quote them. They actually like put it down and say, hey, check this out. Here is, here is some good doctrine in theology, and they, they footnote it. Isn't that funny? They footnote the false comforters. Ah, and so I'm not any better, though. You know? And so we have this also an issue. So how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus do anything or have anything to do with Job? And so in uh, John 9, he, th- it says this, and starting in verse 1, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See? They're even thinking the law of retribution. This man deserved it, or at least his parents did. And Jesus doesn't play that game. He says, it was not this man, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God might be displayed in him. So most people are generally correct. You know, generally, you will get whatever you put out into the world. And God will judge it. But how do we know which judgments are for God's? No, we're not the judge. How are 
How, how am I supposed to know that? Who, who am I to say that, oh, that's obviously God's judgment? That's not the way it goes. Uh, Neil Tyson DeGrasse, you know, a, an atheist, he's, could be, you could be correct and you could also be a jerk at the same time. Okay, like the three false comforters. And so, Neil Tyson DeGrasse, right after uh, 31 people lost their lives in two mass shootings in less than 12 hours, he writes this. On average, across any 48 hours, we lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 400 to homicide via handgun. How often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. Gee, thanks, Neil. That makes me feel real good inside. Sure, he's just stating the data. He's just stating what is true. You know, and so when you show up at your friend's house, here's an example of what not to do. People die of cancer every day. Thanks, jerk. Okay? But the thing is, is we've all done that. We've all thought that. We've all felt that way. We've all placed ourselves in the place of God thinking that we know way too much. That's all of us. And so we just heap shame on top of the already bad feelings of suffering that it also already stinks. But then there's also this first-year seminary student, Eliahu. Eliahu, he's a first-year seminary student. He knows it. He's all like, I am trained and ready to help you in your time of distress. And he shows there, bear with me a little and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. What this means is he has read theology books. He's got sweet doctrine. For truly my words are not false, he says. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Eliahu, what in the world? Man, the first lesson in any seminar should be this. You're an idiot. Okay? That's what it should be. And you need to be able to confess that. Okay? So, it takes three years to get there at least. I'm still figuring out how much or little I don't know. And so, what should we do instead of people coming in there saying, we've got all the answers. I am the true comforter. It's this. Don't be like Job's wife who tells you to curse God. No, cling to him. Cling to him in your suffering. What about Eliahu? Not don't be don't be a person who interrupts God. Let God speak. Be present. Show up. God shows up. He's present. God makes his presence tangible often through you. Through your tears with them. God makes himself present whenever you mourn and grieve with loved ones. Mourn and grieve. You don't have to say too much. Point to God's character. Speak the truth of God in the Bible. Otherwise, you'll end up like, like uh, what the Shins say in the, in the song Young Pilgrims. This rather simple epithet could save your hide, your falling mind. Fate isn't what we're up against. Oh, there's no design, no flaws to find. There's no design, no flaws to find. But I learned how fast to keep my head up because I know I got this side of me that wants to grab the yoke of the pi- from the pilot and just fly the whole mess into the ground. He says, I'm just going to throw it down. There's no, there's no fate, there's no design, there's nothing. And so just go and be happy and smile. Is that what we're to do though? 
No. When we see suffering, we call suffering, suffering. We don't ignore it. We don't ignore it. So the next thing is you've got to see God in suffering. You've got to hope for the judgment. God shows up in a whirlwind after being interrupted by Eliahu. And so it says in 2 Corinthians, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, without God in suffering, suffering is just a scam. It's something that just happens to us. We shouldn't cry about it. We shouldn't rage about it. We shouldn't be angered by it. We should just let it happen. There's no basis for us to call it unjust or wrong. It's just what happens if there is no God. You know, it, maybe Macbeth says it, or in, Shakespeare says it well in Macbeth. The way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. Life but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Without God, it means nothing. But with God, suffering has meaning. It has been transformed. It means we are being changed. And on the cross, we see that Jesus does incur suffering to turn suffering on its head to change it. He actually, we are meant to mourn it. We're meant to be saddened by suffering. And so we see suffering produce something good. Because at the cross, we see Jesus, who's the true and innocent sufferer. He's up there. Not because of any sin that he has done, but because of the sins of his people. And he takes it upon himself and he dies. He lived the life we were supposed to live and he dies the death we're supposed to die. And instead of receiving goodness and reward, the reward comes to us and he gets the judgment. You see, at the cross we see all at once that the case has been settled for you and me. We're not innocent sufferers like Job. We deserve it. When we actually take a look at our life, we deserve it. We deserve the judgment. And what is that judgment? Damned. That's the judgment we deserve. But on the cross, Jesus takes the verdict we deserve and gives us the verdict we all desire. That we're just, we're righteous, that we can stand before God. He's calling out suffering for what it is. It's awful. And we see how awful it is on the cross. That's the judgment. That's the verdict. But he's also turning, turning judgment and, and, and suffering into a gift. It's a means to see God even in the difficulty. It's a means to experience God. It's one thing to know a person through the back of a baseball card. It's another thing to throw throw batting practice for him, to sit at his table, to know that person. See, we can know God from afar. We can know great theology. We can maybe say a few right things to a friend who's hurting, but if we have not suffered, maybe we 
We haven't experienced him deeply. So we see at the cross, suffering is turned on its head. It's no longer simply just pain, but a means to bring about something marvelous. So therefore, not even death wins out. It means we can actually enjoy good stuff in this world. It's not meaningless. It means that everything has meaning. Even enjoying good pizza It's meaningful. And that suffering and being sad is actually sad. At the end of Lord of the Rings, Samwise sees Gandalf, who he thought was dead, and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And he listened. The thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter. The pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. A great cloud has lifted. We will all experience suffering. We may, not know, we may never know the reason why. But the God in the whirlwind answers you. Because the whirlwind came crashing down on Jesus himself in order that you can be free and enjoy it and know that even suffering becomes a gift because you are his child. And death doesn't get the last answer. doesn't get the last statement. God's grace, his love for you is what wins out in the end. And lifts all the darkness. And we get to partake of that. Of the true innocent sufferer. Who suffered on our behalf in this meal. Jesus has made death even come untrue. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, when difficulty comes. When we suffer. I pray that we may see you in all suffering. I pray that we would call out to you. That we would not abandon you. Help us to cling to Jesus who stands and he has never given up. And God never gives up on Jesus. And if we're in Jesus, we are sure forever. So give us strength, although we are feeble, although our minds are limited, to know that even in suffering you are present, you are the God who can call out the Leviathan. You are the strong God who takes away our sin. You are the true innocent sufferer in Jesus who loved us even when we were idiots. Help us to turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.